Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fisk em All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording in my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. I have been given a preliminary all-clear by Mike the Sound Guy. I should be allowed to return to the studio next week. Uh, the coughing has mostly subsided. I even spent some time outside today. Uh, where it was some rain washed out the pollen and I was able to breathe normally. Um, got a couple podcast notes that I need to update y'all on before we get into stuff today. Uh, in today's episode for The Law 140, we're going to talk about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, give you guys an overview on anti-discrimination law. Next week, if everything goes well, we will not have a Law 140 because I'm hoping to have an interview with Roger Eccles, the elected district attorney for Dorm, North Carolina. Uh, we're going to talk about the Confederate Monument case. We've talked about it in several podcasts before, and I'm going to get his perspective on how that all went down. Uh, the week after that, April 30th, is going to be our not-quite-one-year anniversary of this podcast. You remember our very first episode was on May 1st. So we're going to have another one on April 30th. I don't know if we're going to do anything as like a celebration. I'm open to suggestions, uh, but that's going to be in two weeks. And then the two weeks after that, we are probably going to have to do a What the Fisk for at least one of them because both weekends uh, I'm occupied. So uh, the first weekend in April, I will be, or May rather, I will be uh, speaking at graduation at my alma mater, the North Carolina Central University School of Law, uh, because I am the president of our alumni association. So I have to give a pep talk to the graduates. And then the weekend after that is we're going to be celebrating my girlfriend's birthday. So I don't know if I'm going to have time to do an outline. So if you have questions that you want me to answer uh, as part of our next volume of WT Fisk, uh, please make sure to tweet us using the hashtag FSCK. Uh, speaking of tweeting us, if you have not already done so, please join the conversation online. It is always lively, especially this past week. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. It is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a comment, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. Or you can join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Uh, got a couple political things to talk about, nothing too in-depth, but there, there are two things that caught my eye. First was from BuzzFeed. They put together a compilation of anti-Muslim rhetoric from American politicians. And I know you will be stunned to find out that most of them happen to be from Republicans, and it's really gotten bad. Uh, they, you know, it really started trending south after the 9/11 attacks, and for some folks, they just kind of like washed that away, like that was no surprise. And as much as certain people hate President Bush 43, I love the guy. I've said that before, and one of the things that he tried to do repeatedly was to tamp down the uh, the anti-Islamic rhetoric. But now under Trump, it's like fuck it, let's all go. Uh, so BuzzFeed decided to compile some things. So from their story on it, this is, a, this is a massive report where they've gone through just the past two years. So we're talking just since the, the Trump era, if you will. Uh, you have, for example, an Oklahoma legislator who refused to meet with any Muslim constituents unless they first filled out a questionnaire about whether or not they beat their wives. Uh, you had a Nebraska senator who said that if you're Muslim and you want to enter in the country, you have to eat pork first. 
Uh, and a police chief in Alabama posted a video on social media where he's dipping ammo in bacon grease. Uh, and legislator in Rhode Island actually wanted to bring back Nazi concentration camps, but put Muslims in them. And it goes on and on and on and on. So I'm going to give you the link. It's a very long story. It will take you a while to get through it all. Uh, but it's fucking grotesque. You know, I, I've never in, uh, experienced discrimination on a level that American Muslims deal with or that Jewish folks deal with or anything else. But when I came to North Carolina, I learned that anti-Catholic bias was a thing. I happened to be Roman Catholic. And I thought it was just the dumbest fucking thing in the world. And now dial that up to 11. And that's basically what you're dealing with, with actual bona fide elected officials. This is what happens when you have no domestic agenda. The Republican Party does not have a domestic agenda. Conservatives have completely given up trying to advance actual conservative principles, one of which was that regardless of what religious faith you chose, it's none of the government's fucking business. That used to be a key conservative thing. And yet now, in the Trump era, we got fucking litmus tests over who you happen to pray to, even though got news for you, the God of the Jewish faith, the Muslim faith, and the Christian faith is all the same one. They all come from the same faith tradition. So I'll give you that story. Uh, the other news in politics is that Donald Trump's lawyer is fucked. Michael Cohen is fucked. Uh, his office was raided. His hotel room was raided at the same time. They raided someplace else. But the part of how thoroughly fucked he is came out in a document that the United States Attorney's Office filed with the federal court. Because all this stuff is online. Uh, we use a system called PACER when it comes to federal court documents. It stands for uh, Public Access to Court Electronic Records. So you, me, anyone else, it, as long as it's not a sealed document, there's a PDF of it online that you can download fairly cheaply. I think it's like you know a couple pennies a page, and there's no charge if it's less than $10. Um, but I'm going to give you some quotes from the story in The Intercept because as I read through the PDF, one particular line stood out for me. Uh, basically what happened was that Michael Cohen's lawyers, so you know, when you say MAGA, M-A-G-A, it's making attorneys get attorneys. That's what the Trump slogan actually means. So Donald Trump's lawyer has now had to himself get a lawyer, and they were trying to attack the search warrant, trying to get back the evidence that was seized – arguing that it was invalid, you know, because there's a, there's a separate set of policies when police raid a law firm. It's not supposed to happen often. It's not supposed to happen lightly. It can be done. I mean, there's something called the crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege, which means that you can't hire a lawyer for the purpose of planning out your crimes. The privilege, the protection of the confidentiality of your communications does not apply. Uh, but because you have other clients who are legitimately hiring this attorney, you don't want to compromise their stuff. So what happens in the federal context is that when the FBI raids a law firm, they set up what's called a taint team, uh, basically someone who is walled off from the people running the investigation. And the taint team's job is to go through all of the stuff that's seized and separate out what's privileged versus what's not and only give the non-privileged stuff to the investigation team. Um, so anyhow, Cohen's people filed this motion trying to get this stuff back. And as part of the response, the U.S. Attorney's Office said, well, technically we've been monitoring this guy's emails for a while now. 
Uh, so here's some excerpts from The Intercept. It says, quote, lawyers for Michael Cohen, a personal lawyer to Donald Trump, argued in a hearing that a recent FBI raid on his offices swept up sensitive documents that should be protected by attorney-client privilege. The Southern District of New York has an interesting counter-argument. Cohen is barely a practicing lawyer anyway, which they claim to know because they've been reading his emails. A 22-page opposition document filed by the U.S. attorney to counter Cohen's request for a temporary restraining order on seized files reveals that the Southern District has been privy to Cohen's email for a while now, having obtained a previously undisclosed search warrant. According to the documents, subquote, Cohen has exceedingly few clients and a low volume of potentially privileged communications and performs little to no legal work. The U.S. attorney also questioned the Cohen's team's grasp of the law in his own defense, noting that, subquote, not only is Cohen's reliance on the United States Attorney's Manual, which sidebar is only for the prosecutors, uh, not only is their reliance on the USAM misplaced, but he invokes the wrong section which applies to attorneys who are not, subs, uh, not suspects of a criminal investigation. The government's argument emphasizes that information seized from Cohen's work or home were taken as part of an investigation seeking evidence of crimes, many of which have nothing to do with his work as an attorney, but rather relate to Cohen's own business dealings, uh, such as there's some fraud involved with a cab company he owns, some potential fraud about a bank loan he took to uh, pay off Stormy Daniels, the porn star that President Trump banged, uh, he's fucked. I mean, that's the gist of it. He's thoroughly fucked. Nothing substantially is going to happen because what's going to happen is that the papaya potus is going to give him a pardon so he won't actually go to uh, jail for anything. But it's highly likely he's going to get disbarred. And if there ends up being any non-federal crimes involved, he's probably going to be prosecuted for those as well. So this is going to be yet another member of the Trump inner circle. Who all do we have now? So we've had Flynn plead guilty. Papadopoulos plead guilty. Uh, Manafort's business partner, whose name I don't remember, he's pled guilty. Manafort's been indicted. Now, this guy is probably going to get indicted at some point fairly soon. Uh, so it's just, it's a mess. The fact that Congress is not going to do anything about it highlights that 2018 is essential. I hope all of you vote, and I don't care who is running. I hope you vote for whoever is going to oppose the president because this country is headed down a bad path. Our institutions are fucked. And they're fucked because we have spineless Congress critters who do not believe in executing their job as oversight, overseeing the executive branch. They exist to pass laws. They exist to engage in oversight. They're not really doing either of them. They're all fucking ridiculous. All right. In criminal justice news, so we don't have anything noteworthy with the courts or with research. Uh, normally, I separate out the federal stuff, but we've had so many federal stories this week that are in specific states that I've buried the federal stuff within the respective states because you will be hearing a lot of them uh, where federal law enforcement agents basically spend their spare time killing people and lying about it. Uh, so we're going to start off in California in Delano or Delano. Uh, this is a Blue Lives Matter example where Immigrations and Customs Enforcement agents basically chased an undocumented couple because they had mistaken them for someone else. They caused a fatal car crash, and then they lied about it. And then ICE said, okay, well, yeah, maybe they lied, but it's because of California's sanctuary city policies that, that happened. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Delano police say immigration agents gave statements that, and I love the wording here, conflicted with surveillance footage. They, they fucking lied. Uh, in the wake of a crash in which two immigrants in the country illegally died while fleeing. 
The death of Santos, Garcia, and Marcelina Perfecto sparked protests in the Central Valley community. The couple, who had six children, were not the intended targets for arrest, according to ICE. So basically, they didn't even get the right people. And now we have six kids without parents. For what? I mean, what is the law enforcement value for this particular chase? Even if they were the intended targets, what is the value to creating a situation where people could likely die just because you're trying to have them deported? You can deport them later. They're not going anywhere. That's the entire point. Uh, So the story continues. Basically, the officers provided statements about what happened. And the story says, quote, the statements provided by the deportation officers, subquote, contradict with the surveillance review conducted because, of course, this stuff is on video. First rule of FISC, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, the statement issued by ICE explaining what happened continued saying that sanctuary policies, quote, have pushed ICE out of jails and force our officers to conduct more enforcement in the community, which poses increased risks for law enforcement and the public. So basically what they're saying is you're collateral damage and fuck you if you have a problem with that. That is the attitude of federal immigration and customs enforcement. Uh, We also have another first rule of fisk in Kern County, California. Sheriff Donnie Youngblood is on video saying that it's better financially to kill suspects rather than wound them. Uh, From the story says, quote, the sheriff of a California county with an outsized number of police shootings, and I'm going to give you the stats for that at the very end, uh, once said that it was better financially to kill suspects than wound them. Kern County Sheriff Donnie Youngblood was looking for an endorsement when he posed the question, he posed the question, when a deputy shoots somebody, which way is better financially, to cripple them or kill them for the county? Someone in the audience was so taken aback, they actually said, kill them? To which Youngblood responds, absolutely, because if you cripple them, then you have to take care of them for life, and that cost goes way up. Who the fuck thinks to ask this as a question at a forum when you're trying to get an endorsement? Like, who comes up with this shit on his own? So the sheriff for this particular town, the town in 2015 had 13 people killed by police, according to the UK Guardian, even though their population was less than 900,000. Now, for comparison, New York City, with a population of 8.5 million, uh, only had nine people killed by police the same year. It's absolutely fucking insane. So that's Kern County, California. Out of Sacramento, the Sacramento police have issued a new policy on when officers can turn off their body cams after you saw in the video of their extrajudicial summary execution of Stefan Clark, one officer say, hey, mute, and the officers cut off their cameras. From the story, it says, quote, Sacramento police have issued their first written policy on when officers can turn off body cameras after two officers muted their microphones following the fatal shooting of an unarmed black man in his grandparents' backyard because, of course, they had to coordinate their stories. That's not part of the story. That's just my editorial commentary. Uh, Story continues, body camera footage of Clark's killing reveals that the two officers who shot him were told to mute their microphones several minutes afterwards. The new policy from the department requires officers to verbalize their reason for turning off the microphone in the future. Now, this is good. I don't want to undersell the fact that this is good. But here's my question. Why the fuck is this being issued by the police department rather than the city council? As with Congress critters, why do we have a legislative branch to oversee the executive if they're not going to actually do it? Uh, So those are out of California and Connecticut. 
we got a couple non-police stories in our school systems that are just very disturbing. This is one of them. Uh, in Montville Township, teacher Ryan Fish has been arrested uh, because he's running a bona fide fight club at a local high school. He's a math teacher, by the way. From the story, it says, quote, A few months after Ryan Fish was fired last year, police began to investigate stories they've heard of the substitute teacher's unconventional math class at Montville High School. To ask about certain classroom videos officers had obtained, Fish reportedly let his students draw obscene pictures on the whiteboard and told his classes stories about smoking marijuana and other drugs. He even shared his Snapchat address as a gesture of friendship. Fish was arrested on Thursday on multiple charges of reckless endangerment and risk of injuries to a child. What he called his social thing, in subquote, was actually a fight club, according to police in which Fish refereed as students beat themselves to the point of blood and vomit while other children cheered and took cell phone videos, all of which was shared on Snapchat. Uh, so it goes on from there. We'll give you the story. It's some ridiculous fucking shit. Uh, in another not-a-police story, the civil lawsuit against Howard University by former student Tyrone Hankerson has been filed. If you've not heard about this story yet, you're, you're not really on Twitter or social media in general. But basically, an audit was done of Howard's financial aid. And a post was made on a blog about several people, including this Tyrone Hankerson, who was an undergraduate student and then went to Howard University Law School. And essentially, they published this kid's account showing that he got over $400,000 in financial aid, way in excess of his cost of attendance. Uh, meanwhile, he's got pictures on Instagram, Twitter, and everything else where he's wearing Gucci fur coats, going on trips, and so on. Uh, and then, of course, during this time period, Howard is notifying its students who can't afford to attend that there is no financial aid left. It was this tremendous scandal. Well, Hankerson threatened to sue, saying that the school violated his privacy and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, I talked about it on Twitter before the lawsuit was filed. The lawsuit has since been filed, and it's not particularly well done. Uh, so, for example, uh, there are two ways to get into federal court. One is called federal question jurisdiction, which means you're suing uh, under the United States Constitution or a federal statute. That gets you into federal court automatically. The other one is called diversity jurisdiction, which means that the plaintiff resides in one state, all of the defendants reside in different states, and the amount in controversy that you're fighting about is more than $75,000. The thing is that by having people in different states, the assumption is that a federal court will be less likely uh, to be biased against one of the parties. Well, to have diversity jurisdiction, you have to have that diversity of states, but in the actual complaint, uh, they say that the plaintiff and all of the defendants reside in Washington, D.C., which is the textbook definition of not being diverse. Uh, you also have basic grammar problems. For example, all companies have what is called a registered agent, the person who's registered with the state to receive lawsuits. Uh, they call that the resident agent instead. They claim that things uh, are implied that were defamatory. The implications were defamatory, but don't actually cite any specific defamatory statements. They ask for an employee's uh, termination and punitive damages as part of a breach of contract claim, which you typically can't get those as part of a breach of contract claim. And it goes on and on from there. So I'll give you the link to the Twitter thread where I talked about some of the privacy law as well as gone through the complaints. 
Uh, I'm normally loath to criticize other attorneys' work product because I would hate to have someone going through my shit. But when you've got something that's this high profile, I, I kind of expected something a little bit better, frankly. Uh, out of Florida. So this is the now the third of the non-police stories. This one involves a school in Bradenton where school officials removed a teen girl from class uh, because of her breasts and then made her jiggle them around for them. Like, it's, it's just so fucking disgusting. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, After being pulled from her fifth period class at Braden River High School, uh, the junior from Bradenton, Florida, and I don't have her first name for some reason, her last name is Martinez, uh, found herself in the principal's office and was told that the nipples and breasts were distracting other students and a boy was laughing at her. Thus, she was violating the school dress code. Uh, subquote, they had me put on a second shirt and then stand up and move and jump around to see how much my breasts moved. Martinez told BuzzFeed News, I was mortified. Martinez says she was taken to the nurse's office after that and given four band-aids to put over her nipples, two for each breast. Subquote, they told me to cross out my nipples and I just went to the bathroom and cried. The next day, after tweeting about the incident, she informed her followers that Braden River High School had blocked her on Twitter. As of Sunday night, the teen said she was still barred from following her school's account. And it goes on from it. It's just so fucking grotesque to have grown-ass people being so incredibly concerned about a teenager's boobs. It's just... You know, here's the thing. Why weren't we punishing the boys for staring at her breasts in the first place? Isn't that problematic? And why don't we make boys put on extra pairs of jeans when they get an erection randomly? You know, this whole sexualizing of kids is disgusting. It's fucking disgusting. It predominantly affects women, unfortunately, but it's so fucking gross. Just stop. Uh, so that's out of Florida. In Illinois, in Elgin, the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Police shot and killed 34-year-old DeCynthia Clements less than a half second, really, somewhere in the half-second ballpark after she stepped out of her truck on Interstate 90. And this is after the responding officers all talked amongst themselves about how they could deal with her without killing her. Uh, so from the story, you find out that Clements had been seeing a therapist for suicidal thoughts and hallucinations. And the story says, quote, even though Clements was brandishing a steak knife, when she emerged from her SUV and walked toward Elgin, Illinois law enforcement officers, it seemed as if the cops had everything under control. Clements' truck had been immobilized and was surrounded by at least seven officers. A canine unit was present on the scene. The officer in charge even informed the other police officers to use rubber bullets first and then a taser. Instead, they shot her in the head. On Friday, Elgin police released more than 30 unedited hours of footage showing the March 12th standoff that ended with the death of a 34-year-old black woman with mental health problems. The body cam and dash cam footage shows police officers trying to coerce Clements out of her truck on the shoulder of the Illinois interstate. Police officers can be heard discussing tactics as to how they plan to handle her once she exited the vehicle. Subquote, if she does exit out of the vehicle, we'll try to order her back. Lieutenant Christian Jensen, the one who shot Clements, can be heard explaining in the footage. Jensen, who indicates he is the boss at the scene, tells the other officers, subquote, if she does end up brandishing the knife, we'll go with the 40. Okay, and the 40 in that case is referring to the rubber bullets, something that's supposed to be less than lethal. Continue, subquote, and if it ends up being closer, if she comes towards us, we'll try to tase her then. We'll take other options. 
But Clemens apparently surprises the lawmen by setting something on fire in her car. As smoke fills the vehicle, Clemens can be seen opening the door, gagging for air. Officers yell, put the knife down, as she puts one foot on the ground. She takes one step, and multiple gunshots ring out. In multiple viewings of the footage, The Root, which is the publication that has this particular story, uh, estimates that somewhere between 0.44 and 0.66 seconds pass between Clements exiting the vehicle and the first shot. She never got to take more than two steps. Uh, in Louisiana, so this we got two stories. One is criminal justice, one is not. I'm going to give you the not criminal justice first. Well, I guess it kind of is in a sense. Uh, so you have 10 Republican senators that apparently think it's cool to fuck animals. Uh, from the story, it says the state Senate has approved a bill designed to make it clear that bestiality is illegal in Louisiana. New Orleans Senator J.P. Morrell says it's important that the state has a way to arrest someone for having sex with animals. He told fellow lawmakers, God forbid you vote against this bill. Good luck explaining it. But 10 Republican senators voted against it anyway. You know, one of our patrons, Michael Teal, he asked me on Facebook, he said, what's in the water in Louisiana? And the answer, I guess, is love prospects. I don't fucking know. Uh, also out of Baton Rouge, the Sixth Amendment does not exist in Louisiana. We've talked about this before. I have described Louisiana as a floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck when it comes to their courts. And we got a recent example. The Louisiana Sheriff's Association estimates that 1,300 people have been in local jails for four years or longer waiting for their trials. Seventy of them have been held for five years without having their case heard, according to the group's informal survey. I think the number is actually higher, Michael Renatza, executive director, said after a budget hearing before state lawmakers in the House Appropriations Committee. Now, here's a highlight of the how fucked up and disorganized Louisiana is. So the sheriff estimates this tremendous number of people held for four or five years without trial. Quote, Jay Dixon, Louisiana's state public defender, said he was surprised the sheriff's count of people waiting for years without trial was that high. Public defenders have a system that automatically alerts them if nothing has happened in a case for six months. Dixon said he didn't have an easy way of verifying the Sheriff's Association numbers, explaining that the people counted aren't necessarily represented by public defenders. There could be a number of factors that force someone to sit in jail awaiting trial, including the ability to afford bail. Here's the part that, that blows my mind. We are able to track shipments across the country, track flights track god knows whatever else have companies like blue apron and rent the one ray and every every conceivable thing you could possibly have ordered to your door can be done how the fuck do we not have a data system that tracks who's sitting in jails in all the different jurisdictions of a state it's not that hard you look at a lot of these counties and cities and jails will have inmate locators that are updated daily. How do you not have the ability to pull that data together into a data set that lets you know how long someone's been sitting in jail? That's insane to me. It absolutely blows my mind. Uh, so in Maine, we have two different cases, neither of which are police-related, but they both relate to school boards. Uh, so in Minot, a bus driver, or Minot, I don't know how to pronounce a lot of these places, y'all, I apologize. Uh, in Minot, Maine, a bus driver who was fired uh, for calling Martin Luther King Jr. Day, quote, National N-Word Day, except he didn't put the N-Word, he actually used what we call the N-Word, uh, and also referred to the superintendent and the chairman of the school board both as cunts 
has been elected to the school board. From the story, it says, quote, a regional school unit 16 bus driver who was fired for racist and sexist comments was elected this month to the board of the school system that fired him. Mike Downing, 68, admits he has made comments over the years, including in recent months calling Martin Luther King Jr. Day National Racial Epithet Day. Uh, Racial epithet is in brackets and referring to Superintendent Tina Meserve and School Board Chairwoman Mary Martin with a profane reference to the female genitalia. However, Downing doesn't believe he should have lost his job over it. He was fired January 22nd. Downing was elected to represent Minot on the RSU 16 School Board in March. A write-in candidate, he won the open seat with just 31 votes. Uh, so next door, in Oxford Hills, Maine, a school board member has now resigned, Uh, because he was outed as having a lot of white supremacist propaganda on social media. From that story, it says, quote, An Oxford Hills school board member who resigned last week amid an outcry over divisive comments he made on social media said he's not a racist and doesn't deserve the scorn heaped upon him by critics. Subquote, I am not the problem. The problem is what's being taught in the public schools to Christian boys and girls said Robert Celeste, a former construction company owner who calls himself pastor of the web-based Church for the American Christian Patriot. Celeste strongly denied that he's a racist, despite posting material calling for the defense of the white race. Subquote, God created four races, white, red, yellow, and black. Man created a fifth race through rape, slavery, and prostitution, the mixed race. Celeste has a history of making racist comments on social media. In November of 2015, he posted on Facebook after the deadly attacks in Paris, France, that, quote, Last night in Paris, the Obamites showed their hand. I and others expect something like it will happen here on U.S. soil. I didn't know Obama was involved in the French attack, but that's good to know. Uh, In June of 2016, about how to break up an anti-Trump rally, he posted a picture of a poster that read how to break up a Black Lives Matter protest featuring several black men and a child with a speech bubble saying, are you my dad? Celeste believes there's nothing wrong with trying to protect white people. Nobody tells the yellow race they need to integrate and water down. He said, I have said nothing controversial. Public schools, on the other hand, have much to defend, he said. Take dinosaurs, for example. Celeste said it's only been roughly 6,450 years since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, a place where people and animals lived in innocence and harmony. He noted that dinosaurs were still flying around out west when cowboys first ventured out toward the Rocky Mountains. So when books and teachers in schools say that dinosaurs lived millions and millions of years ago, he's more than just dubious. He's outraged. What that is saying is that God lied. You know, it's interesting. I don't see anything in the Bible about God creating four races. But that's just me. So that's out of me. When we talk about systemic racism, that's the type of shit we're talking about. You have two different spots in Maine. Now, granted, there aren't that many black people in Maine to begin with. But you have at least two elected officials who have pretty odious views on race who are now policymakers. One was a policymaker for years before resigning. Another one just got added on to the board. So, yeah. Uh, In Massachusetts, in Cambridge, another first rule of Fisk scenario Uh, Cambridge police were on cell phone video beating the everlasting shit out of a black student who happened to be a uh, goes to Harvard. 
From the story in the Harvard Crimson, it says, quote, A black Harvard College student was arrested Friday night after a physical confrontation with law enforcement for charges including indecent exposure, disorderly conduct, assault, and resisting arrest. Essentially, they think the guy was on drugs. He was had thrown his clothes at his girlfriend, had wandered into traffic naked, and refused to come with police because he was apparently on something. We don't actually know that he could have been having some kind of mental issues, but regardless... Uh, the CPD wrote a tweet explaining what happened, and in the tweet they say officers, quote, located and verbally engaged the student who was standing on a traffic island in the middle of Massachusetts Avenue. The officers and the student then engaged in a physical altercation. I, I love the very bland-sounding language there. Uh, quote, numerous attempts made by officers to calm the male down were met with opposition, and his hostility escalated while officers attempted to speak with him. After he was observed clenching both of his fists and started taking steps toward the officers attempting to engage with the male, officers made the tactical decision to grab his legs and bring him to the ground. Now, of course, this is all on cell phone video. They tackle the guy to the ground, and as he's on the ground, you see police repeatedly punching the fuck out of him regularly. So the CPD released this story, basically using their bland police terminology like everything is fine. Uh, well, the Black Law Students Association that had the videos released a counterstatement basically saying their story was bullshit, uh, saying, among parts, quote, a naked, unarmed black man stood still on the median at the center of Massachusetts Avenue and Waterhouse Street. He was surrounded by at least four Cambridge Police Department officers who lunged at him, tackled him, and pinned him to the ground. While on the ground, at least one officer repeatedly punched the student in the torso as he screamed for help. So, of course, you know, yeah, ask how did Balsa know these things? Well, they've got the videos. That prompted the police to issue a new statement to have a uh, their spokesperson, Jeremy Warnick, uh, elaborate. And I'm putting elaborate in air quotes. Uh, once he was on the ground, the individual party, notice it's now gone from black male to individual party. The individual party had pinned his arms under his body, making it difficult for officers to handcuff him. Physical force was used to unpin his arms and gain compliance. Uh, so just know, if you happen to be black in Massachusetts, the fact that you go to Harvard is not going to protect you. Uh, in Michigan, in Rochester Hills, this is one of the... It spent a lot of time on Twitter dealing with fucksticks about this particular story. Uh, so a 14-year-old kid who is in a two-parent household, his father is deployed in Syria, his mother is home taking care of him, he missed the bus to school. So mama's punishment took his phone away from him and said, you better walk, figure it out. So he did... And he got lost, and he saw a house that had a neighborhood watch sign out front, so he decided to knock on the door to ask for directions, and the firefighter that lived there tried to shoot him dead. From the story, it says, quote, A Rochester Hills man chased a 14-year-old boy away from his porch into his yard and fired a shotgun toward him after the teen knocked on his door to ask for directions to school, according to the Oakland County Sheriff's Office. Jeffrey Ziegler is charged with assault with intent to murder and felony firearms violations. Deputies responded about 8.20 in the morning Thursday to the home on South Christian Hills Drive. They might want to ponder where the fuck they live. Uh, after a caller said someone was trying to break into her home. The caller reported that a black male was trying to break in and her husband chased after him into the yard. Upon deputy's arrival, it was determined that the husband chased the male with the 12-gauge and fired around towards him as he fled. Now, here's the thing. How do they know all this? Because these paranoid little fuckers living in a lily-white neighborhood have one of those security cameras that record everything. 
So police got the video and showed that this kid was just asking for directions and the guy tried to kill him. Uh, turns out that this is not the first time Mr. Ziegler has been in trouble with the law. He was charged with felony assault with a dangerous weapon, aiming without malice, and felony firearm offenses in 2006. He was found guilty of three counts of misdemeanor aiming without malice instead, sentenced to one year of probation. It turns out, you'll be surprised, he is a Detroit firefighter, given a $50,000 bond. You know, normally in Durham, if you try to kill someone, it's unlikely you're going to get allowed out. You're going to be held over until trial. But because he's white and he's a firefighter, they give him $50,000 bond. Uh, and he's going to have to wear a GPS tether upon release, which I don't know what the fuck the purpose of that is because he's trying to kill people when they come to his door. But you'll notice this is a recurring theme with firefighters just like it is with police. You had that uh, EMT in New York who had his racist comments, got a promotion, became a firefighter because of it. You have the firefighters in Florida who drew dick pics on their black co-workers, photos of his family, put a noose on his desk. Uh, the firefighter in Ohio, that one dog is more important than a million N-words. Uh, it's also a recurring theme when black folks go ask white folks for help. Renisha McBride in Detroit was shot dead after a car accident when she knocked on a door trying to get medical care. Jonathan Farrell, right here in North Carolina in Charlotte, was in a car accident, went to a white man's door, knocked on it, police showed up and killed him. But you can't tell that to the white folks because, holy shit, they will come out in force on Twitter. If you get bored after you hear this, go to my Twitter feed and you will probably see comments from it because I posted this story on, I guess it was Friday night or Saturday, and people were still sending me tweets about it, calling me a racist and a bunch of other shit all the way through Sunday night. It's fucking ridiculous. Uh, in New York, Canon Dagua. And I, I'm probably butchering how that's pronounced, but this is an example of the fifth rule of Fisk. If you don't remember, the fifth rule is that when people say blue lives matter, they don't mean the dark blue ones. Uh, a black parole officer was shot and killed in her own home during a welfare check, and no charges will be filed. From the story, it says, quote, The family of an off-duty parole officer who was shot and killed by a Canandaigua police officer says it plans to file a wrongful death lawsuit. Detective Sergeant Scott Cadian was dispatched to check on the welfare of Sandy Guardiola, 48, after she failed to show up for work last October. Investigators say that after he entered her apartment, Guardiola drew her service weapon and pointed it at Cadian. Because, guys, when you're at home and someone just barges in, you're concerned it's going to be a fucking robber or something. Cadian uh, responded by shooting her three times, and she later died from her injuries. At a press briefing Monday, the county district attorney said a grand jury concluded that Cadian believed he was confronted by the use or imminent use of deadly physical force against him, and his belief was objectively reasonable. So keep this in mind. We've talked about this several times before. Your right to defend yourself from a home invasion does not extend to the government creating the hostile situation itself. Out of New York City. The first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit, even when they're being recorded. You've heard that about four times just in this episode. Uh, NYPD cop Joseph Essig is learning that you can get away with pretty much anything as long as your dad is an assistant police chief. From the story, it says, quote, A rookie cop whose dad is an NYPD chief avoided getting fired after an off-duty arrest for groping a woman at an Atlantic City casino. Just 15 months into his brand new NYPD career on October 8th of 2015, 
Essek was arrested at the Harris Casino in Atlantic City on a felony charge of criminal sexual misconduct. There ended up being security camera footage, which is how this all came about. Uh, New Jersey authorities downgraded the plea to just a health code violation. Essek pleaded guilty, was ordered to stay away from the victim, and paid a $1,000 fine. Officers facing similar charges with less than two years on the force are typically fired, but Essek remains on the job. The department's handling of Officer Joseph Essex's case raises questions among police sources who suspect high-ranking officers and those close to them are treated with kid gloves in discipline cases. Turns out his dad is an assistant police chief. Also continues, quote, Mayor Bill de Blasio gave the Essex a shout-out in July 2014 when Joseph Essex and his brother James were sworn in as officers during a police academy ceremony. De Blasio said the brothers were, subquote, carrying on the family tradition times two. That's something we appreciate. I'm not sure that's the tradition the mayor had in mind. Uh, out of North Carolina, in Orange County and other spots in the Triangle, uh, ICE decided to arrest non-criminals who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. From the story, it says, quote, at least half of the men that immigration agents arrested this week in Orange and Chatham counties were not the intended targets including three brothers who worked at a family-owned Franklin Street restaurant. Luis Ordonez and Cruz Ordonez Guerra, who both work at Roots Bakery, Bistro, and Bar, were cleaning up a mobile home Wednesday on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard when men showed up wearing vests and shirts labeled police. Luis Ordonez called his brother, Roots co-owner Gabriel Ordonez Ramos, to interpret because the agents were asking about a man who had failed to appear in court on a drunken driving charge. Gabriel and his brothers were arrested instead. Now, none of these three were the guy the police were looking for. Uh, Roots co-owner Turtle Harrison said he and his brother-in-law, Rolando Ordonez Ramos, haven't slept in a couple days. He drove to Raleigh to see his brothers-in-law before they were moved, but he was turned away. Now, Gabriel's wife and their five-year-old daughter are staying with his family. The arrest has deeply affected the family, and their Guatemalan-style restaurant is now short-staffed. They haven't even thought about how it could affect their second location, opening in Durham's Hope Valley Shopping Center. Gabriel came to the United States as a child. The others are more recent immigrants who were bullied and beaten in their native countries. None of these guys have criminal records. The only thing they've done is entered the country illegally, but they've lived otherwise law-abiding lives. They've been productive citizens. They've helped run this restaurant that's doing well enough they're opening a second location. So when the Papaya POTUS... And Republicans tell you that immigration is targeting bad hombres. They're lying to you. What they're doing is they're hiding behind this family values mantra that they used to get elected. And they use that to break up families via the immigration process and ship people out who've not done anything wrong. And this leads to multiple follow-on effects because what's going to happen is you're going to have people not reporting crimes because they don't want to risk getting deported. You're going to have kids who don't want to go to school because they don't want to get deported. You know, it's similar to guns. We, we talk at length about gun control, and the conservative argument is that you can't ban guns because there are too many of them in the country. So you need to find a way to deal with the situation in some other capacity. It's the same way with undocumented immigrants. You're not going to round up and deport everyone, and the ways you're trying to do it are creating bigger problems, so figure something else out. Uh, also in North Carolina, out of Fayetteville, the Fayetteville Police Department decided to blow civil asset forfeiture money on new toys. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, It may look small in the sky, but in the hands of a trained police officer in Fayetteville's new aviation unit, these drones can make a big difference when it comes to fighting crime. 
The department recently launched a new 10-person drone unit. Officers will use the drones to search for suspects on the run as well as missing people. The drones cost just over $90,000 and were completely funded with forfeiture money. Now, that's money that was taken from people who have not been convicted of a crime. The entire story reads like a fucking police press release. I'm disgusted that the Fayetteville Observer printed it as it is, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, in Ohio, out of Toledo, four teens who killed a 22-year-old black man by throwing a sandbag off an overpass into his car uh, are not going to receive jail time. Uh, the four kids, Demetrius Wimberly, Sean Carter, William Parker, and Pedro Salinas, all pleaded guilty to charges following the death of 22-year-old Marquise Bird of Warren, Michigan in December. Bird was killed when a sandbag was dropped from an Indiana Avenue overpass onto I-75 and crashed through the windshield of his car. Back in February, two of the teens told the court they were walking from the Port Lawrence apartments headed to the store to buy candy. They walked over the bridge that goes over the I-75 expressway and started throwing rocks. Sean Carter admitted to dropping a sandbag over the edge and it landed on the side of the road. The boys said Pedro Salinas dropped a second sandbag and they heard a loud crash. The kids ran and bought candy from the store. As they were walking back, that's when police stopped them. Uh, rather than going to juvenile detention, they will go to a cushy youth treatment center. You know, I, I don't know how I feel about this one because on the one hand, I have said repeatedly that we can't just destroy people's entire lives based over moments of abject stupidity. And that's particularly true for minors because these kids, three of them were 13, one of them was 14 years old. But at the same time, you have to be taught consequences and getting to go to a well-padded youth treatment center that's really not that serious doesn't really teach you a consequence when you've taken someone's life. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that one. I'll let you guys chew on it. Uh, Out of Oregon and Jefferson County, three sheriff's deputies in the local jail have been indicted for the death of an inmate. Uh, Two Jefferson County sheriff's deputies and a corporal were indicted Wednesday on criminally negligent homicide charges in connection with the death last year. A 59-year-old Portland man jailed on drug allegations. Michael Durkin, Corey Skidgel, and Anthony Hansen. Each were charged with a single count of the felony, which carries up to five years in prison. They are accused in the death of James Whipple. Whipple died April 26th of 2017 while in custody at the county jail in Madras. Whipple had been arrested April 24th by Warm Springs police on accusations of heroin possession and delivery and methamphetamine possession. He was taken to the Jefferson County Jail without incident. But two days later, Whipple said he wasn't feeling well and was seen by the nursing staff. An ambulance was called at some point, but the man died before leaving the jail. At the time, Atkins did not say what steps his staff took to address Whipple's medical problems or how long his deputies waited to call for an ambulance. We'll see how that turns out. Uh, Also in Oregon out of Portland, the federal government nearly got a guy killed because they were determined to do a secret raid on some weed. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, shortly after 9 a.m. on a Saturday in December, Two men showed up at the office of a public storage warehouse in southeast Portland and asked about renting space. On-site manager Sean Riley led them to an empty unit and unlocked it. The pair followed him in, then suddenly drew large silver handguns. One of the men pressed his pistol against the manager's forehead. The two demanded to know who'd stolen their stuff, a stash of nearly 500 pounds of marijuana in another unit at the business. Riley hadn't taken anything, he told them, but who had? 
It was agents with the Drug Enforcement Administration, and the agents deliberately made the confiscation look like a burglary, according to court records. Uh, they used a sneak and peek warrant. or Sorry, they call them delayed notice search warrants, where the government raids your shit and tells you about it after the fact. This is just fucking stupid. If you're going to bust them, sit on the fucking drugs until show, someone shows up and bust them then. Don't make it look like someone stole their stuff when it was actually you who did it. Uh, the federal government is stupid. Uh, in Pennsylvania, in Bedford County, a district attorney who held himself out as a Christian crusader and who regularly talked about waging a culture war against liberals has resigned for his family values. Uh, and I'm putting the family values part in air quotes if you couldn't tell. From the story, it says, quote, Bedford County District Attorney William Higgins resigned Wednesday after he was charged with abusing his power by giving several women convicted of crimes leniency in exchange for sexual favors. Mr. Higgins, a Republican who has served Bedford County since 2004, faces charges recommended by a grand jury after a years-long investigation. He turned himself in to authorities Wednesday morning and waived his right to a preliminary hearing. The Attorney General's office charged Mr. Higgins with obstructing administration of law or other governmental function, official oppression, recklessly endangering another person, intimidation of witnesses, and hindering apprehension or prosecution. The investigation revealed that Mr. Higgins intentionally compromised drug investigations by refusing to authorize valid search warrants, refused to file criminal charges in some cases, and disclosed the identity of multiple confidential informants, putting their lives in danger. Now, you'll be shocked, I'm sure, to find this is not the first time this guy has been up to no good. From the story, he continues, quote, In 2008, a woman accused Mr. Higgins of sexually assaulting her in his office at the Bedford County Courthouse, but authorities declined to file charges. Uh, also in Pennsylvania, out of Philadelphia, we have a first rule of fisk situation where two black men were arrested at a Starbucks for waiting for their friend. I'm not going to talk about that right now because that's going to be the topic for our Law 140, so we'll cover that in a minute. And then out of Pittsburgh, a and this is such a, a bizarre case, a police officer has been charged with falsifying reports to cover up another officer's road rage activity. Uh, and it's it's an investigation by the press, which did a phenomenal job. But basically, so here's the story. Quote, a Pittsburgh police officer is accused of falsifying a report and hindering an investigation in an attempt to protect another officer who pointed a gun at a motorist during a road rage incident last May. Officer Kalen O'Connor of Banksville is charged with obstructing the administration of law, official oppression, hindering apprehension or prosecution, and unsworn falsification to authorities. Officer O'Connor has been suspended without pay. Police launched an immediate investigation when they became aware of subquote possible unethical and criminal conduct by a member of Pittsburgh Police, Chief Scott Schubert said. The incident involved at least eight officers and began on May 3rd when a driver named Jesse Smith called 911 to report a road rage incident. Mr. Smith told authorities that he was driving his sport utility vehicle when a black Mercedes pulled alongside him. The driver of the Mercedes, later identified as police officer Robert Kramer, rolled down his window, and the two began to argue about speed and reckless driving. Next thing he knew, Mr. Smith said he was looking down the barrel of a silver revolver with a short barrel and bullets in the chambers. Mr. Smith then told Officer Kramer to get out of his car, at which point Officer Kramer sped away. 
Officer Kramer later told investigators that he'd been holding a silver cell phone, not a gun. Now, the next piece of this, and this ends up being an entire page of my show notes, I'm not going to actually, or my uh, my outline rather, I'm not going to go through them, but essentially the media put together a series of phone calls made by these different officers to each other. And basically what you find is that over this 31-minute time span after this guy called 911, you have eight different officers all coordinating amongst themselves, uh, discovering the fact that Kramer was the guy who had the car and everything else, figuring out where he lived, deciding not to do anything about it, told dispatch, hey, forget about this, it's no big deal. Uh, basically all of them coordinating their stories and lies and everything else, and the press has a minute by minute of how this all happens. Uh, so it continues, quote, the next day, Kalen O'Connor, the officer who's been charged, submitted an official report about the incident, and the report made no mention at all of Officer Kramer, his address, or his license plate. The report also did not include the fact that officers had been sent to his home. The suspect in the case was listed as unknown. The investigation of the road rage incident ended until Mr. Smith started repeatedly calling the department to ask about it. On June 6th, Zone 6 Detective Dawn Mercurio pulled up the report and began her own investigation. She called Officer Kramer, who admitted he was in the car, but denied pointing a gun, saying it was a cell phone. Officer Kramer also denied owning a silver revolver at all, until, you'll be shocked by this, subsequent investigation showed he had actually purchased a silver Smith & Wesson revolver in 2013 and used it for police firearm training that same year. Uh, so it's fun times in Pennsylvania. Uh, out of Tennessee and Morristown, so ICE is terrorizing small communities too. It's not just the big ones here in North Carolina. Uh, from a story, the quote, the rural community of Morristown, Tennessee is reeling following the largest raid by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement on a business in a decade. On Thursday, agents with ICE's Homeland Security Investigations Wing, also known as HSI, stormed the Southeastern Provision Meat Packing Plant and detained scores of people. In a reflection of the ongoing toll the raid has taken on Morristown's immigrant community, Jeffrey Perry, superintendent of the school district, told The Intercept that hundreds of students did not show up to school following the operation. Subquote, the school district is not in the business of establishing policy at the national level or state level, but we are focused on helping out students and families. So right now the staff and administration are focused on what we can do for our students and what we can do for their families. Jessica Hahn, a labor attorney with the National Immigration Law Center in Washington, said, subquote, this kind of large-scale worksite immigration raid is incredibly disruptive to local communities, leaving children stranded without their parents terrifying entire communities and devastating local economies. The effects are going to be felt for years to come. Uh, out of Nashville, Matthew Charles is going back to prison. Uh, we talked about this guy back in episode 46, back in early January. If you haven't listened to it, go back and check it out. Uh, basically, he was the black guy in Nashville who was given a mandatory minimum of 35 years for drug possession. He had served 20 years and then a judge eliminated the rest of his sentence because of uh, sentencing changes that President Obama had put in place. Well, the U.S. Attorney's Office didn't like that and appealed the sentencing changes. Eventually, a court agreed that the Obama-era rule changes were invalid. Uh, so this guy spent the past two years of his life free and by all accounts has been a model citizen. I mean, he volunteers every week, is trying to get a job, put his life together and everything else. Uh, well, it turns out 
the U.S. Attorney's Office refused to drop the case, was adamant that he go back to prison despite his rehabilitation, and a judge ruled that that's the case. He's got to go back for at least 10 more years. He's got 45 days to turn himself in. Uh, you know, our, our sentencing system for crimes is wildly out of whack. It's not just federally. It's out of whack at the state level, too. And it completely destroys people's lives over trivial fucking offenses. I don't care what kind of drugs it is. You should not be spending 35 years in prison for drug possession, period. You got fucking murderers that do less time. You know what I mean? And study after study after study shows that if your goal is changing conduct, the way you have to do it is to have a punishment that is quick and certain. But instead, we don't do that. We have slow and potentially not going to be imposed, but for these ridiculously long spans of time. You know, if you want to affect drug possession, have a system set up where every time you have drugs, you're going to do two days in jail with 100% certainty, and it's going to be within a few days of it happening. You know, we have drug courts where that's a, a possibility. You go through a special sentencing process where the police have the authority to just lock you up immediately after every time you end up being caught with drugs. It's not an added conviction. It's just part of the, the sentencing process, and that helps change people's behavior. But when you arrest someone for possession, they don't have a trial for two, three, four, hell, five years if you're in Louisiana. And then you give them a 35-year prison sentence. That doesn't change behavior. That doesn't serve as deterrence. It just completely wastes fucking money, if anything else, because you're spending money to house this person. Eventually, they're still going to get out. So you got to spend money to make sure they can actually become a productive citizen again. But it's just – it's fucking immoral. It is absolutely immoral. Uh, so what state was that? Was that Tennessee? That's Tennessee. Uh, out of Texas, in Laredo, Customs and Border Patrol, uh, an officer has been indicted for raping a woman. David Villarreal turned himself in to Laredo police on Thursday, facing charges of sexual assault, tampering with or fabricating physical evidence, and official oppression. The victim approached Laredo officers on my birthday, March 26th, and told them she'd been raped the previous day. And this is what cracks me up because the next story is even worse. Customs and Border Patrol issues a statement. And while it is CBP policy not to comment on an ongoing investigation, such actions will not be tolerated. Border Patrol spokeswoman Sarah Melendez said in a prepared statement, CBP stresses honor and integrity in every aspect of our mission. Keep that statement in mind because just days later, in the same town, Customs and Border Patrol officer has been indicted for murdering a one-year-old child and his mother. From the story, it says, quote, A U.S. Border Patrol agent has been arrested after the bodies of a woman and a one-year-old child were found near a rural park in South Texas. The bodies of 27-year-old Griselda Hernandez and her son Dominic were discovered about 15 feet apart near the banks of the Rio Grande. Ronald Burgos Aviles, the Border Patrol agent who reported finding the bodies, was arrested on two counts of capital murder. He and Hernandez had been in a romantic relationship. That's CBP for you. Uh, out of Virginia, thousands of drivers are now getting pulled over for driving too slow. This is another example of the Virginia money racket when it comes to traffic tickets. From the story, it says, quote, Thousands of people have been fined in the months since Virginia, for the first time, imposed penalties on people who drive too slowly in the left lane or commit other traffic-related offenses. Data obtained through a public records request shows. Beginning July 1st of 2017, Virginia set a $100 fine for driving too slowly in the left lane, failing to stay to the right except when passing, and other violations. 
Before that, the infractions were considered legal violations but had no fines attached. Among the cases that had been resolved, 623 people simply paid the fine without going to court, another 332 went to court and were found guilty, and 309 were found guilty in abstentia. Another 14,815 people were cited between July 1st and April 3rd with the new fine under a broader section of the law that explicitly requires any vehicle going slower than the normal speed of traffic to stay to the right, except when passing another vehicle or preparing to make a left turn. So if you add those numbers up, the number of people who've been cited times the $100 fine you're getting roughly $1.6 million in fines, and that's in less than a year. That's just from July through April. Now, the funny part is the statute requires you to stay in the right lane when you're going less than the normal speed, but you can't go above the normal speed to pass because then you could get pulled over for speeding. It's all, it's all a money racket to fund the government because people don't want to pay taxes. So they find new ways to arrest you, cite you, and have you pay more in court costs. It's, it's stupid. Uh, out of the state of Washington, in Seattle, the, uh, this is some good news. Let it not be said that I don't talk about good news. Uh, the state Supreme Court has issued a ruling allowing a woman with a history of drug abuse and other crimes to actually take the bar exam and potentially become a lawyer. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Nearly five months ago, the state Supreme Court ruled that a Seattle University Law School graduate who overcame a history of crime and substance abuse could take the state bar exam. In doing so, the nine-member court unanimously rejected the recommendation of a Washington State Bar Association board to deny Tara Simmons that opportunity. The ruling cleared the way for Simmons to take the bar exam in late February. She gets the results this month. But it wasn't until Thursday that the court provided its reasons for the decision. In a 33-page opinion, Justice Mary Yu laid out the court's thinking and the formal, stilted language of the law before articulating its simple conclusion on the power of redemption. Quote, We affirm this court's long history of recognizing that one's past does not dictate one's future. I'll give you a link both to that story and the opinion. Um, you know, it, it's a uplifting opinion. The catch is, can we apply it to other people beyond the white woman wanting to take the bar? Uh, out of West Virginia, in Welch, lawsuits and settlements are piling up against one particular state trooper to the point where taxpayers are going to be shelling out more than a quarter million dollars just in settlement payments. From the story, it says four men have sued the same West Virginia state police trooper in federal court over the past 18 months, alleging he beat them and caused broken ribs, concussions, and spinal damage. Senior trooper Ralph Justice has been on paid administrative leave, that's a paid vacation, for a year as he is the subject of an actual internal investigation according to state police. No allegations in the lawsuits line up with the March 2017 administrative change, which means he was put on paid vacation for something else. Two of the men who sued Justice, Aaron Akers and Antonio Tolliver, settled their lawsuits in December for a combined total of $190,000. Justice allegedly beat the two men in the hallway of the state police detachment in Welch, beyond the range of the building's security cameras. Another victim of a hallway beating from justice, Michael Ferguson, signed a settlement agreement for $75,000 earlier this month. 
In the most recent lawsuit, Jamie Justice alleges justice. Is, so you have Jamie Justice, I-C-E, uh, alleging just us, T-U-S, uh, and other troopers beat him unconscious on the pavement of the Wealth Detachment's parking lot. In three of the four cases, the troopers charged the suspects with crimes that were later dismissed by a judge. In the fourth case, the suspect was found not guilty of criminal charges brought against him. Uh, so, folks, that's the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery. Every now and again, we do cover stuff in other countries. Uh, one of them is from the United Kingdom in uh, Wales, the town of Gwent, I'm guessing it's pronounced. Uh, and this goes to showing how police can avoid killing people when they want to. It can be done. Uh, so police arrested a man despite the guy having two fairly sizable knives and going out of his way to stab the officers. From the story, it says, quote, a man having a psychotic episode who tried to stab a police officer with two kitchen knives has been jailed. Tony Buttigieg, B-U-T-T-I-G-I-E-G, it's a weird name, don't know how to pronounce it, uh, was sentenced to four years for attacking Officer Ridian Jones in Newport. The Swansea Crown Court heard the Gwent police officer genuinely feared for his life. The 37-year-old admitted attempted grievous bodily harm for attacking Officer Jones after he had been tasered. In the months leading up to the attack, the estate agent lost his job and had split up with his girlfriend. The court heard he was under the influence of alcohol and drugs, and the judge acknowledged medical evidence showing he was experiencing a psychotic episode. And this is all on body cam. And it's a, it's a very British body cam, or I guess Welsh. It's a very Welsh body cam. Because uh, the guy's super polite. He's like, you know, one of the things he says is, is there anything I can conceivably do or say that would get you to put those knives down? So they try and talk to the guy at length. Finally, they realize that he's not going to put the knives down, so they coordinate amongst themselves. One officer is going to open the door. Another officer is going to tase him. A third officer is going to go for the knives. And that's what happens. They manage to take this guy down, disarm him, and no one's injured. Now, you're going to be surprised, of course, to know this guy is white, but it shows that the police can do this. It can be done. You just have to fundamentally rethink how we value human life in this country. Uh, also out of Argentina, just as kind of a comedic thing in the town of Pilar, a half ton of marijuana went missing from police headquarters. Uh, eight officers who were questioned about it claimed that it was eaten by rats. They have all been fired. Uh, so folks, that is the criminal justice fuckery for this week. Let's jump in to our Law 140, where I'm going to give you all an overview of non-discrimination laws in public accommodations in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So I mentioned in the state-by-state news that in Philadelphia, there was a situation where two black men were arrested at a Starbucks because they were waiting for a friend. Truly heinous crime. Uh, And of course, this was all caught on video. So I'm going to give you some quotes from the story as background says, quote, Philadelphia's mayor's office and police department have begun separate investigations into the arrest of two African-American men waiting to meet an acquaintance at a Center City Starbucks on Thursday after a video of the incident was widely shared on social media, triggering national outrage. Mayor Kenny said in a statement Saturday afternoon that the city's Commission on Human Relations has been asked to examine Starbucks' policies and procedures, including whether its training includes safeguards against implicit bias or unconscious stereotyping. 
A police spokesman, meanwhile, said the department's internal affairs unit is probing the incident at the coffee shop. Police Commissioner Richard Ross said earlier Saturday that his officers acted appropriately in a Facebook Live video. The video of the arrest, which was posted by Philadelphia-based author Melissa DePino, shows at least six Philadelphia officers taking the two men into custody without resistance. By 5 p.m. Saturday, the video had gathered nearly 4.3 million views. In the clip, the two men can be seen being escorted from a table at the cafe in handcuffs, while a white man, who has been identified as Philadelphia real estate investor Andrew Yaffe, asks why officers were called and attempts to explain to police that the two men were waiting for him. Subquote, what did they get called for? Because there were two black guys sitting here meeting me? Yaffe asks in the video. What did they do? Why would they be asked to leave? Does anybody else think this is ridiculous? It's absolute discrimination. Now, of course, since this has all happened, Starbucks has issued two separate apologies. One, they had a completely bland one they tweeted out, and then a separate apology issued by the CEO himself. Uh, The men were transported to the jail. They were fingerprinted. They were photographed. They were held for nine hours before they were released without any charges at all. And one of the things in the CEO apology says, quote, our store manager never intended for these men to be arrested, and this should have never escalated as it did. Well, here's the thing. Why the fuck would you call the police if you didn't intend to have someone arrested? But that's neither here nor there. So this is all going on on social media, Twitter, everything else. And I ended up having a conversation with a lawyer out of D.C., who I respect a lot. And he asks, not only is he like smart, but he knows to ask smart, philosophically oriented questions that force you to think about things. And he sent me a direct message. And essentially it was, you know, once the police are called, how do you get a happy ending in this scenario? What could have been done differently? Because he and I both agree that the main fault lies with the Starbucks employee. That part's a given. The manager racially profiled these guys and should not have. But then the question becomes, once the police told them to leave and they didn't, they were arrested for trespass, theoretically. You know, is that, you know, are the police on the hook? And my standpoint is, yes, the police are absolutely on the hook. And I'm going to explain why in a minute. But that led to a back and forth between him and I, which became the genesis for this particular topic, because a lot of people don't understand that we actually have laws against discriminating in public facilities. Now, when I say public facilities, I don't mean government-owned facilities. I mean facilities that are open to the public for the conduct of business. They're called public accommodations. It is a legal term of art that is in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But before we get into that... I want to give you a little bit of history because you've got to remember it wasn't that long ago that discrimination was actually the law. It was allowed and it was widely practiced. The Jim Crow era uh, was still around when my parents were alive. And it was so pervasive that you had what was called the Negro Motorist Green Book that was created as a guide for people to know what places served black guests. Because basically what happened, you know you know how you go like Barnes & Noble and stuff now, and you can get like a Zagat's and all those other books that talk about restaurants in different cities and stuff, or Yelp, but in printed version. Um, you had black folks who were buying cars because they didn't want to face the segregation on public transportation. But when they tried to travel, it was, it was perilous because not only could you just get randomly arrested because that's what officers did, and sometimes they still do, frankly, but as, as particularly in the South, you had what are called sundown towns, which means that if you're within city limits after the sun goes down, you'll be lynched. 
you had spots that wouldn't serve them or repair their car. So you're buying a car, you're traveling to another state, it breaks down, and no one's going to actually allow you to uh, come and have your vehicle fixed at their place. They could be denied from getting food or staying at a hotel. And then you had, of course, the threats of physical violence. So the Green Book was published by a New York mail carrier. He worked for the post office. His name is Victor Hugo Green. That's where the Green Book came from. And he published it for 30 years. I mean, he it covered almost all of the United States and several foreign countries. And it was a Bible for black folks who wanted to travel because it gave them an idea of where to go. So that was the background of what people were dealing with during the Civil Rights era. So the Civil Rights Act became this tremendous, really crowning achievement of the Civil Rights Movement. But to get there, you got to remember the second rule of Fisk. Whenever you're looking at legal issues like this, you have to start at the source, which includes the Constitution and the statutory text. So Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress the explicit power, quote, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes, and to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Check out our Law 140 just a couple weeks ago on the Federalism Overview on how those different clauses are interpreted. And then you have the 14th Amendment. Now, Section 1 is lengthy, but among the things that it says is that no state uh, shall, quote, deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And then Section 5 says, quote, the Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. So that's the background. That's the constitutional authority that led to passage of the Civil Rights Act in the summer of 1964. And the text for it is expansive. It's got multiple. They're organized into sections called titles. I think there are nine of them, maybe seven. Don't quote me on the number. There are a lot. But the part that matters for public accommodations is called Title II. And Part A of Title II, it's 42 United States Code, Section 2000A, Subpart A, says, quote, equal access. All persons shall be entitled to the full and equal enjoyment of the goods, services, facilities, privileges, advantages, and accommodations of any place of public accommodation as defined in this section without discrimination or segregation on the ground of race, color, religion, or national origin. Now, what is a public accommodation? Well, that actually covers four different spans of things that the Congress defined uh, very well. What it says in Part B is each of the following establishments which serves the public is a place of public accommodation within the meaning of this subchapter if its operations affect commerce or if discrimination or segregation by it is supported by state action. Part 1, any inn, hotel, motel, or other establishment which provides lodging to transient guests other than an establishment located within a building which contains not more than five rooms for rent or hire and which is actually occupied by the proprietor of such establishment as his residence. Part 2, any restaurant, cafeteria, lunchroom, lunch counter, soda fountain, or other facility principally engaged in selling food for consumption on the premises including but not limited to any such facility located on the premises of any retail establishment or any gasoline station. 
Subpart 3, any motion picture house, theater, concert hall, sports arena, stadium, or other place of exhibition or entertainment. And Part 4, any establishment which is physically located within the premises of any establishment otherwise covered by the subsection, or within the premises of which is physically located any such covered establishment, and which holds itself out as serving patrons of such covered establishment. It's very broad. It covers pretty much every business that is open to the public. Now, of course, this prompted litigation from racists who thought the federal government was overstepping its bounds. And one of the landmark cases dealing with it is called Heart of Atlanta Motel versus the United States. This is one of the landmark decisions that most folks haven't heard about. So like if you, you put together important Supreme Court cases, there are certain ones that everyone knows. You know, everyone's heard about Brown v. Board of Education. A lot of folks have heard of Gideon v. Wainwright, about the right to counsel, Marbury versus Madison, all that stuff. There are other seriously important cases that most people don't know about, and Heart of Atlanta Motel is one of them. So basically, you had a hotel that was discriminating and wanted to discriminate, and they were found in violation of the Civil Rights Act, and they sued. And when I say they sued, they sued quick because – the Civil Rights Act passed in July of 1964, and the Supreme Court issued its decision in the case in December of 1964. Like, this was super fast. Uh, so as background, the Heart of Atlanta Motel was in Georgia, refused to accept black Americans. They were charged under the Civil Rights Act, and they sued making three different arguments. One, they argued that by enacting it, Congress exceeded its powers under the Commerce Clause. They argued that it was a violation of the Fifth Amendment. It was a, a taking, essentially, without due process. And they, they also argued that it was violating the 13th Amendment. Now, you might remember the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. Heart of Atlanta Motel said that by not being allowed to discriminate against blacks was equivalent to involuntary servitude. Uh, so I'm going to give you some excerpts from the court's opinion. It ended up being unanimous, but the court goes through some of the background and everything else. So, quote, this case comes here on admissions and stipulated facts. Appellant owns and operates the Heart of Atlanta Motel, which has 216 rooms available to transient guests. The motel is located on Cortland Street, two blocks from downtown Peachtree Street, it is readily accessible to Interstate Highways 75 and 85 and State Highways 23 and 41. Appellant solicits patronage from outside the state of Georgia through various national advertising media, including magazines of national circulation. It maintains over 50 billboards and highway signs within the state, soliciting patronage for the motel. It accepts convention trade from outside Georgia, and approximately 75% of its registered guests are from out of state. Now, you'll notice what the justices are doing here is laying out that the motel is engaged in interstate commerce. That's what all of this prefatory language is about. Uh, they continue, quote, prior to passage of the act, the motel had followed a practice of refusing to rent rooms to Negroes and it alleged that it intended to continue to do so. In an effort to perpetuate that policy, this suit was filed. The appellant contends that Congress, in passing this act, exceeded its power to regulate commerce under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 of the Constitution of the United States. 
that the act violates the Fifth Amendment because appellant is deprived of the right to choose its customers and operate its business as it wishes, resulting in a taking of its liberty and property without due process of law and a taking of its property without just compensation. And finally, that by requiring appellant to rent available rooms to Negroes against its will, Congress is subjecting it to involuntary servitude in contravention of the 13th Amendment. And you got to think, how ballsy is that argument? You're basically arguing that the amendment that was designed to eliminate human bondage prevents the federal government from regulating discrimination. It's a pretty brazen argument. The Supreme Court opinion continues, It is admitted that the operation of the motel brings it within the provisions of Section 201A of the Act, and that appellant refused to provide lodging for transient Negroes because of their race or color, and that it intends to continue that policy unless restrained. The sole question posed is, therefore, the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as applied to these facts. The legislative history of the Act indicates that Congress based the Act on Section 5 and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, as well as its power to regulate interstate commerce under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 of the Constitution. Now, the Court then goes through a lengthy span of its prior precedent on what the Commerce Clause entails, what Congress has been allowed to prohibit, and so on and so forth. That is the bulk of the opinion. Uh, And the court eventually holds that this was a legitimate thing for the government to do. They say, quote, the power of Congress to promote interstate commerce also includes the power to regulate the local incidents thereof, including local activities in both the states of origin and destination, which might have a substantial and harmful effect upon that commerce. One need only examine the evidence, which we have discussed above, that's referring to the prior cases, to see that Congress may, as it has, prohibit racial discrimination by motels serving travelers, however local their operations may appear. Nor does the act deprive appellant of liberty or property under the Fifth Amendment. The commerce power invoked here by the Congress is a specific and plenary one authorized by the Constitution itself. The only questions are whether Congress had a rational basis for finding that racial discrimination by motels affected commerce, and if it had such a basis, whether the means it selected to eliminate that evil are reasonable and appropriate. You might recall that's the rational basis standard of review we've talked about. They continue, quote, if they are, appellant has no right to select its guests as it sees fit free from governmental regulation. We find no merit in the remainder of appellant's contentions, including that of involuntary servitude. As we have seen, 32 states prohibit racial discrimination in public accommodations. These laws but codify the common law innkeeper rule, which long predated the 13th Amendment. It is difficult to believe that the amendment was intended to abrogate this principle. Indeed, the opinion of the court in the civil rights cases is to the contrary as we have seen, it having noted with approval the laws of all the states prohibiting discrimination. We could not say that the requirements of the act in this regard are in any way akin to African slavery. We therefore conclude that the action of the Congress in the adoption of the act, as applied here to a motel which conceitedly serves interstate travelers, is within the power granted it by the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, as interpreted by this court for 140 years. It may be argued that Congress could have pursued other methods to eliminate the obstructions it found in interstate commerce caused by racial discrimination. But this is a matter of policy that rests entirely with the Congress, not with the courts. How obstructions in commerce may be removed, what means are to be employed, is within the sound and exclusive discretion of the Congress. 
it is subject only to one caveat, that the means chosen by it must be reasonably adapted to the end permitted by the Constitution. We cannot say that its choice here was not so adapted. The Constitution requires no more. So that was a very landmark decision. And the gist of it is this, that entities like Starbucks are public accommodations. If you're serving interstate customers, if you're buying interstate products, if you're an interstate chain like Starbucks is, a global chain in their case, uh, you're part of the Civil Rights Act. You are prohibited from discriminating against people based on their race. So the question that I posed to the attorney that I was talking to, and it's a philosophical one, is can you have someone arrested for breaking a law, in this case trespassing, that wasn't broken until you yourself broke a different law, in this case violating the Civil Rights Act to profile these men. Now, like I said, most of the blame lays with the Starbucks employees for racially profiling them. I'm not disputing that. But the police aren't off the hook because they're basically acting as enforcers for a racist. Now, there's also like basic procedural stuff here, like why were six officers necessary, you know? There could have been just one officer who showed up who would have probably mediated the dispute because that happens every day. Where's the officer's investigation? Why aren't they asking what happened? Why aren't they talking with patrons to get some details? Why are you taking the 911 caller's words as gospel? You know, that's one of the reasons why so many unarmed black people get gunned down by police because someone calls 911 and says, I think he, they have a gun and they're wrong. But rather than actually find out, they see someone's holding something and they shoot them dead anyway. Where's the officer's discretion not to arrest? Officers let stuff slide all the time. You know, why arrest them at all if you're going to wait for Starbucks to decide they want to press charges, which Starbucks said, no, we don't want to do that, which is why these guys were eventually released. If the crime supposedly was them refusing to leave when the police asked them, the offense was committed regardless of what Starbucks decides. The police told you to do something and you didn't do it. You've now resisted, delayed, or obstructed a peace officer. That is the crime. Why are you pussing out and deciding that, oh, we're going to put this on Starbucks, but you put these guys through the humili humiliation of being arrested, transported, and booked anyway, and then held them for nine hours without charges? But then also beyond that, it requires a fundamental reassessment of how we handle discrimination. If your only solution to being racially profiled in a business and told to leave when similarly situated white people have not. If your only solution is to comply, go home, file a lawsuit, and then wait two and a half years for a settlement, that's an inefficient way of addressing the conduct the Civil Rights Act was adopted to prohibit. It's exactly like I talk about with criminal sentencing. To effect change, you have to have a certain quick punishment doesn't have to be long, but it's got to be absolutely certain. It's got to be administered quickly after the events. And instead, we have people drag things out for potentially big punishments years down the line. This is the same type of thing here. So I don't take the police off of the hook because the fact is if they're going to act like fucking lawyers with every other conceivable thing they do, they should know that racial discrimination is against the law. Even if they don't know that, they have an obligation to ask around and figure out what the hell happened. And you get that in the video when Yaffe shows up and explains, hey, these guys were just waiting for me. Because otherwise, essentially what we're saying is that any racist can evict any black person from any establishment using the full weight of the state 
because we just want to argue that police don't have discretion to do what we pay them to do. This is not RoboCop. All right, we don't have an Ed 209 that just shows up and administers punishment. There's supposedly living, breathing human beings with brains, some of which have college degrees, all of which get paid a fair amount of public taxpayer money to train. We spend a lot of money on training these people. So that is my uh, two cents of it. The gist of it is this. You had two guys who were racially profiled against the law. You then had the police intervene to enforce that violation of the law. And the attorney I talked to had a valid point. He's like, look, social media is bringing its own form of justice, which is valid. But the responses of, well, if I run a private business, I can ask whoever I want to leave whenever I want. That's not fucking true. It's empirically not true. If you want that to be the case, what you need to do is run a business that is so small and uses only locally sourced materials that you're not engaged in interstate commerce and you're in a state that does not have a state level equivalent to the Civil Rights Act. Otherwise, you got to accept there are people not like you that you're going to have to serve if you're going to open yourself up to the public. That's just fucking reality. Uh, so, folks, that is the overview of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and anti-discrimination and public accommodations laws. That concludes this particular episode of the podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do us a favor and leave us a five-star rating or a written review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, who will be editing this remotely, thank you so much for listening. I hope all of you have a great week, and I will talk to you next Monday, hopefully in the studio. Take care.